0: Friends and fellow citizens, I stand before you tonight under indictment for the alleged crime of having voted at the last presidential election without having a lawful right to vote. It shall be my work this evening to prove to you that in thus voting, I not only committed no crime, but instead simply exercised my citizens' rights guaranteed to me and all United States citizens by the National Constitution beyond the power of any state to deny. The preamble of the Federal Constitution says, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It was we the people, not we the white male citizens, nor yet we the male citizens, but we the whole people who formed the Union. And we formed it not to give the blessings of liberty, but to secure them, not to the half of ourselves and the half of our posterity, but to the whole people, women as well as men and it is a downright mockery to talk to women of their enjoyment of the blessings of liberty while they are denied the use of the only means of securing them provided by this democratic-republican government, the ballot. For any state to make sex a qualification that must ever result in the disenfranchisement of one entire half of the people is to pass a bill of attainder or an ex post facto law and is therefore a violation of the supreme law of the land. By it, the blessings of liberty are forever withheld from women and their female posterity. To them, this government has no just powers derived from the consent of the governed. To them, this government is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It is an odious aristocracy, a hateful oligarchy of sex, the most hateful aristocracy ever established on the face of the globe an oligarchy of wealth where the rich govern the poor. Webster, Worcester, and Bouvier all define a citizen to be a person in the United States, entitled to vote and hold office. The only question left to be settled now is, are women persons? And I hardly believe any of our opponents will have the hardihood to say they are not. Being persons then, women are citizens, and no state has a right to make any law or to enforce any old law that shall abridge their privileges or immunities. Hence, every discrimination against women in the constitutions and laws of the several states is today null and void, precisely as is everyone against Negroes.
1: Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 30, Another Swing of the Pendulum. In 1872, feeling as though she were a person, as defined by the U.S. Constitution, Susan B. Anthony felt like she was entitled to the vote and therefore cast a vote in that year's presidential election. The court disagreed and fined her $100. Incensed by that injustice... She embarked on a speaking tour in which she gave a speech, from which we have redacted passages for today's opening. She would end up dedicating the rest of her life working for the cause of women's suffrage. This is a bit before the time period covered in today's episode, which is the Progressive Era, usually defined as 1897 to 1920. But the cause of women's suffrage was a theme that ran throughout the Progressive Era. The Industrial Age and the Gilded Age created significant problems. Poor working conditions, child labor, etc. Many industrialists thrived off this and had no incentive to reduce their workers' 60-hour work weeks or to give the children working for them humane working conditions. Widespread graft and corruption assured the robber barons and industrialists of that era that as long as there was no public outcry threatening the politicians' jobs, there would be no change in the status quo. Then, as I've said, once in a while a book comes along that changes everything. This time it was a photography book. Photography was still a relatively new art at this point. It had come into prominence as a new medium when the use of photographs of the devastation left behind on Civil War battlefields brought the horror that was the Civil War to families far removed from the carnage. Then, in 1890, Jacob Rees, a photojournalist, published a book of his photographs that showed the living condition and suffering of the poor residents of New York City's slums where the working poor lived. The book showed scenes of incredibly poor and overcrowded living conditions, and set off an outcry that Americans should be forced to live in such squalid conditions. The Depression in the 1890s also began a populist movement by ordinary Americans who felt they were overlooked by the prosperity that had made so many so rich. These increasingly publicized problems became well-known and ended up getting under the skin of good, caring Americans. Now disappointed at the excesses of the Gilded Age, Americans were ready to put an end to the corruption that was rampant in America at the time. By the early 1900s, there was widespread political support for populist goals of more regulation of railroads and banks, and more equitable taxation of corporations, ending political corruption, tenement reform, expanded social services for the poor, and better schools. These reforms started in the late 1890s at the state level. Prior to 1891, there had been some movement on the national level. For example, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890. One of the excesses of the Gilded Age had been for shareholders in several companies to transfer their stocks to a single set of trustees. This allowed these trusts to then act as monopolies and keep consumer prices artificially high. The Sherman Antitrust Act provided the executive branch with a tool to go after these trusts. President McKinley had a pro-corporation temperament and didn't use the Sherman Antitrust Act against corporate trusts much. In a corruption of congressional intent, the act was used by McKinley mostly against labor unions. He did appoint some senators to the U.S. Industrial Commission to study the issue of corporate trusts, however. McKinley was president in 1898 during the Spanish American War, where America gained Cuba as a protectorate and Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines as territories. When the Spanish American War broke out, Theodore Roosevelt volunteered as a commander of the 1st U.S. Cavalry. He loved the martial spirit of the military and reveled in his opportunity to see combat. With the much publicized march of his Rough Riders, whom he commanded. Roosevelt led the charge up San Juan Hill in Cuba on July 1, 1898, and was rewarded with national recognition as a war hero. He leveraged this to a spot on the national political stage when President McKinley needed to fill the vacancy left by his vice president, Garrett Hobart, who died in office. President McKinley was then assassinated in 1901 making Theodore Roosevelt president. Although Roosevelt was an unabashed imperialist like McKinley, he didn't share his predecessor's unabashed pro-corporation temperament. He was always up for a fight and decided to take the corporate trusts on. Finally, the Sherman Antitrust Act was put into use, and Roosevelt became known as the trust-busting president. More than that, He championed very significant regulatory reforms. Under him, the Food and Drug Administration was chartered to regulate food safety. Before this, there was virtually no governmental regulation of our nation's food, and much of the mass-marketed food was highly adulterated. More than that, many popularly marketed remedies were little more than alcohol and food coloring. For the first time, Americans could begin to trust the food that they bought and the medicines that they gave their kids. Roosevelt strengthened the Interstate Commerce Commission as well. He famously championed what he termed the Square Deal. His domestic program did not give a handout to the poor or elderly like his cousin Franklin Delano Roosevelt's welfare and social security programs would in the 1930s but they attempted to allow the average working person a fair chance to make it into the middle class without corporations getting unfair profits from monopolistic practices, etc. At the turn of the 20th century, American workers had the highest injury rate of any industrialized nation. At that time, industrials didn't have to worry too much if a worker got injured. If a worker got injured and couldn't work, there was rarely any consequence to the employer and another worker could easily be hired to take his or her place. In 1913, over 25,000 workers in America were killed from on-the-job injuries. Another estimated 700,000 were injured. One can only imagine how daunting this practice was for turn-of-the-century families. With work prospects for Women Limited, and very limited or no social safety nets to fall back on, the prospect of a disabling injury and losing the family's breadwinner's income would have been intimidating. It was the progressive era that finally addressed this. Wisconsin was the first state to pass social insurance in the United States. They passed a workers' compensation law in 1911. Other states quickly followed. By 1921, Only six states had not passed some kind of workers' comp legislation. Families with injured workers now had some safety net for the first time in U.S. history. At the beginning of the progressive era, child labor laws existed, but they were rarely enforced. It's estimated that 10% of girls and at least 20% of boys 15 and under worked. For factory workers workdays were routinely 10 and could be 12 hours, and work weeks were routinely 6 and could be 7 days a week. As people began to be interested in these kinds of excesses, writers, journalists, and novelists began writing about poor working conditions in America's factories and on its farms. Theodore Roosevelt termed these writers muckrakers, which sounds like he disliked this kind of writing, but that wasn't necessarily the case. He was an unusual American president. He wasn't anti-corporation at all, yet he wanted to level the playing field and provide all workers with a chance to achieve the American dream. He came to be known as the trust buster because his Justice Department brought 44 antitrust cases before the Supreme Court, far more than McKinley before him. I wouldn't particularly call him pro-labor, but when the big mining companies refused to negotiate with their striking miners, He threatened to bring the army to run the mines until they did. The miners got shorter hours and a pay increase. His brand of being the neutral president offering an equal shot for all and his promise of giving Americans a square deal made him incredibly popular. For all this, he's not particularly well-liked today. He was an avowed imperialist to the extent that kind of curls our toes in the 21st century. At any rate, the muckrakers gained a mass audience. Then, Upton Sinclair published his masterpiece, The Jungle, a novel about the excesses in the meatpacking industry in Chicago. It quickly became a bestseller and generated much of the passion that led to the Pure Food and Drug Act. With Roosevelt leveling the playing field between workers and corporations, the Progressive Era saw the first positive growth of labor unions in the U.S. The waning decades of the 19th century had seen great efforts of union organizers to improve the lives of workers. But without political support and with the collusion of business and police, even heroic efforts on behalf of unions and their organizers made modest headway in improving the lot of the average American worker. Now, with Roosevelt and the advent of a level playing field between labor and management, major unions, like the AF of L, and the IWW began to make significant improvements in the lives of their workers. William Howard Taft followed Roosevelt as president. He continued Roosevelt's progressive ways and brought 90 antitrust cases before the Supreme Court in addition to working with Congress to pass anti-corruption legislation. By the Taft administration, the progressive era was well underway. Then something happened that added more fire to the progressive movement. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a sweatshop in the Greenwich section of New York City. It employed 600 mostly underage teenage girls who worked 12-hour days, six or seven days a week, to earn a mere $15 a week. It was a classic sweatshop. On March 25, 1911, fire broke out in the factory, and huge numbers of girls were unable to escape the flames because the doors had been locked in order to keep them working all day. A poorly maintained fire escape collapsed, trapping many who had fled to the roof to escape the flames. 146, mostly girls, died in the fire. Galvanized in part by the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, there was overwhelming support for the Republicans, who were seen as the progressive party at the time. Roosevelt stepped down after his second term as president and supported Taft's bid for president. But Taft angered Roosevelt by not continuing Roosevelt's conservation agenda. So Roosevelt started his own political party, the Bull Moose Party, and ran against Taft in the next presidential election. This, of course, split the progressive vote and allowed Woodrow Wilson to win the presidency with only 41% of the popular vote. Nevertheless, even Wilson, presumably the least progressive candidate in the election, continued Roosevelt and Taft's progressive reforms. Roosevelt and Taft had both been Republicans, which was, as Lincoln had been, a more liberal party than now. Wilson was a Democrat, which, at the time, was recognized as the party of Southern conservatives. At the beginning of his presidency, Wilson had a Democratic majority in Congress. Even so, Wilson was sympathetic to organized labor. He and the Democrats in Congress passed legislation establishing the Federal Trade Commission that put a stop to many illegal business practices of the time. He created the Federal Reserve System, which provided for federal control of the monetary system in the U.S. for the first time, and is still the same Federal Reserve that controls monetary policy in the U.S., though it is far more powerful today. Wilson also passed the Federal Farm Loan Act which provided for loans to farmers for the first time. This allowed many farmers to remain on their farms during hard years. Without these loans, many of these farmers would have lost their farms. He also signed a major antitrust law and initiated the income tax system that's still in use today. So even the most conservative presidential candidate turned out to be progressive. It was in 1917 that the 17th Amendment passed providing for the direct election of senators by the electorate. Prior to the 17th Amendment, senators were appointed by state legislatures. This, along with legislation allowing for the initiative and referendum processes, gave people a much greater say in government. The mood of the nation was progressive, and Wilson was popular. That is, unless you were African American. America was just racist at the time. Blacks hadn't improved their lot under Roosevelt or Taft to any significant extent. But even in a racist era, Wilson was a particularly racist person. He famously arranged a White House screening of D.W. Griffith's incredibly racist movie, Birth of a Nation, that did much to foster the resurgence of the KKK in the early part of the 20th century. Even more important, presidential cabinets had been integrated during Reconstruction all present century construction had maintained this integration. This would have been an important example for the government to set as the U.S. began grappling with the race issue in the 20th century. But Wilson, who liked to tell racist, darky jokes, said that he felt it was truly in the blacks' self-interest not to be integrated into the cabinets and approve the segregation of presidential cabinets. Although legislation that passed in this period, like workers' compensation, would do much to improve the lives of many Americans, little improvement was made in the lives of African Americans. It would be a long, uphill battle to convince America of the need for civil rights reform. But this era found leaders that would begin blazing the trail. Booker T. Washington became the developer and first president of the Tuskegee Normal Industrial Institution which would become Tuskegee University. This institution would train African Americans in many trades and crafts in order to allow them a better life. Though he was probably the most famous African American of the day, he was criticized by other black leaders because he accepted segregation and argued that blacks should improve themselves through education in institutions like the Tuskegee Institute. The great W.E.B. Du Bois, was one such critic. Du Bois received his PhD from Harvard and taught at various universities. Du Bois argued that blacks should fight for equal rights. He was a co founder of the NAACP. He published his classic book, The Souls of Black Folk, in 1903. If you haven't read this book, read it before you die. Du Bois would go on to work tirelessly for civil rights until his death in 1963. He certainly wasn't the only African-American leader at the turn of the 20th century, but for me, if not most people, he's the one that stands out. The suffrage movement was now decades old, but this was the progressive era. It now gained steam. The movement had more leaders, saw bigger crowds at rallies, and there were more and more men who were open to the message of women's suffrage. With a great final push in the second decade of the 20th century, the 19th Amendment was passed by Congress and ratified by the states on August 18, 1920. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others of their generation worked all their lives to obtain the voting franchise for women, and both would die a few years before the 19th Amendment would pass. Neither would see women vote in a national election. This is about right for a social movement. When something is as entrenched in the national psyche as racism or denying the vote to women, reformers like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton aren't likely to change the minds of those who are so entrenched in their beliefs in sufficient numbers to affect the social change they're looking for. The minds they'll change, if they're good, are minds that aren't so entrenched in their beliefs. They're the minds of the children of their generation and the following generation of children. Only when they can get sufficient numbers of young minds to see the justice of their cause, and only when a sufficient number of these young minds become of voting age to create a critical mass does meaningful social change happen. This is what happened in the suffrage movement. Those who heard Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's message as teenagers and young adults were the ones who got excited put energy into the movement on a mass scale, and campaigned for the 19th Amendment during the Progressive Era. This was the case with W.E.B. Du Bois as well. He would die in 1963, one year before the Civil Rights Act passed. We've spoken about the temperance movement on the podcast before. It was the Progressive Era in which the temperance movement gained traction. The 18th Amendment prohibiting the sale of alcohol in the U.S. was passed by Congress in 1917 and ratified by the states in 1919. Though we don't see the banning of alcohol as a progressive issue, it was at the time. Alienated workers and struggling farmers had turned to drink to escape the stark drudgery of their life, and alcoholism was a significant problem. Worse yet, there was not a social safety net available to the women who suffered from the domestic violence that was the inevitable result of that much alcoholism. Today, a woman who is the victim of domestic violence can escape to a shelter almost anywhere in the U.S. This wasn't the case for the thousands of abused women back then. For all those who supported the 18th Amendment in the early 18th century, it was seen as a progressive issue. Today, we take a social safety net for granted, but for the first hundred years of our nation, there weren't many options. If you were unfortunate enough to become disabled and had no family support, you may or may not have belonged to a church that could offer some support, but probably not. It was also the progressive era that saw the first social workers and the beginnings of what would transform into the social safety net that we know today. Jane Addams is generally recognized as helping establish the settlement house movement that was dedicated to provide immigrants and other marginalized people in the cities access to health care, education, and other social services. Early social workers addressed infant mortality, working conditions, housing, and sanitation in a systematic way for the first time in many areas of the country. Jane Addams was one of many working to establish the field of social work as the thriving, necessary part of society that it is today. But she was able to bring about great change and was ultimately awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Also at the end of the Progressive Era, in 1917, Mary Richmond, in her book The Social Diagnosis, established the methodology for social work as the profession that it would soon develop into. And so, the progressive era transformed much of American life and culture, sweeping away much of the graft and corruption of the Gilded Age, providing a level playing field for working families, allowing labor unions to grow and thrive in America for the first time, creating legal protections that hadn't existed before for average Americans, giving women the right to vote, and forming the beginnings of the social safety net that so many rely on today. The psychologist Abraham Maslow proposed his famous theory that there's a human hierarchy of needs in which individuals are motivated to fulfill their basic needs like food and sleep before they move on to address other more advanced needs like self-esteem and feelings of accomplishment. I suppose something like that applies when nations go to war. On April 4, 1917, The U.S. declared war in Germany, and America found itself in what would become known as World War I. With the country at war, people became focused on the war and practical issues. Ideas of reforming society were put on hold. That was pretty much it for the Progressive Era. After the Civil War, the Gilded Age brought America head and shoulders into the Industrial Era. Andrew Carnegie and other so-called robber barons, brought industry to America on a scale never seen before. They created massive amounts of wealth, yet tax policies and monopolistic practices allowed half of America's wealth to remain in the hands of 1% of the population and vast numbers of Americans to live at the bottom in squalor and poverty. As I've mentioned before in this podcast, the human brain is complex and multifaceted. We all have complex feelings and motivations. Although we often like to say she's good or he's bad, the reality is that almost all of us are good and bad, generous and selfish. And so it is with Americans as a whole. The American voters are selfish. They want the best for themselves and generous. They care about the less fortunate among us. When End of the Century America saw Jacob Reese's book the other half live, and they realized how wretched life was for a large number of Americans, they reacted. The better angels driver of American history kicked in. That is, compassion for these poor, mostly urban Americans became a strong motivation for many voters who were willing to demand their representatives do something about the condition these people were living in. At the same time, people were getting fed up with political corruption payoffs, and the corporate trusts and monopolies that were causing them to pay far more for things like oil and train fares than they would have if the railroad companies and industrialists were forced to compete with each other in a free market. All of this led to representatives who were ready to do something about the excesses of the Gilded Age. All the reforms that we've talked about in this episode and more are the result of America's response to these excesses. So what will we learn from our foray into the Progressive era? That politics is a pendulum that swings back and forth. It had swung from the Federalists to Republicans in the early years of our Republic, from slavery to anti-slavery. We fought a war over that one. It swung to laissez-faire in the Gilded Age, and then, at the turn of the 20th century, it swung progressive. It would swing from the conservatism of the 1940s and 50s to the liberalism of the 60s and 70s, and back again with the Reagan revolution of the 1980s. Such is the nature of politics. Where's the pendulum now, and where is it likely to swing next? For these answers, we'll have to wait until we get closer to now in our podcast. You guessed it. Your reading this week is The Jungle by Epton Sinclair. I've tried to give a little taste about how hard it was for workers in the Gilded Age. But Sinclair really puts meat on these bones. The Jungle was published in 1905. He takes a deep dive into the excesses of the -the turn-of-the-century Chicago meatpacking industry and examines what life was like for those who had to work in this industry to survive. As I've said, some books change everything. The Jungle was published in 1905. In 1906, Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act that created the Food and Drug Administration. In 1907, Congress passed the Meat Inspection Act, instituting federal inspection of meat factories. Want to know what our foremothers and fathers lived through to build the country we have today? If you can make it through the misery of the lives described by Sinclair, this book is a must-read. Enjoy. See you next week.